0: going to be jumping into 1 Samuel 26. We're continuing our series in 1 Samuel. And this is David's second opportunity to kill Saul. So last week in chapter 24, Steve shared with us um, the story of where David spared um, Saul's life. And this was where David ended up in a, a cave. And again, I just want you to think about like, the part of the scripture, I can't remember if Steve made a big deal of it, but I love really crazy things in the scripture. So it's actually, David's in the cave with his men and Saul is peeing in the cave. When this happens, he's relieving himself. And, um, and so David cuts a part of his robe instead of killing him, which he could have done. And I just think it's so funny. Like There's so much in scripture that I'm like, couldn't you have given us a little more information about this? But then we find out this. But everything's important in Scripture. And so today's passage has a lot of really crazy things in it as well. And so I'm excited to dig into this with you. One of the things that happened at the end of Steve's message in chapter 24, Saul promises that he is not going to pursue David any longer. He says that he is done with us. Saul was moved emotionally. He publicly repented. Um, for this, his intent to kill David. His repentance seemed deep, it seemed sincere, it was emotional, but we're gonna find out today it doesn't last long. And so I want you to strap on your sandals and I want you to get into the story with me today. And I want you to imagine yourself in this story. Our main characters that we're looking at today, again, we've had these characters, you know, as we've gone through this 1 Samuel series. Um, But the first one is Saul. So I just want to remind you, Saul is currently the king of Israel. He was God's anointed, and God has told him that the kingdom is going to be stripped away. But at this point in time, he is still on the throne. Our second key player here is David. And David was anointed. While Saul was anointed, God removes the anointing from Saul. He comes to David with a prophet, Comes to David, anoints David as the next king, but he is in this waiting period. And guys, I want you to keep this in mind. We read chapters of scripture and we fly through them, but from earlier in 1 Samuel until David is going to become king, it's 14 years in the waiting process. I don't know about you, but I get pretty impatient, like when something takes like a week. And, um, and think about this. Think about where David is in this time. He's in this 14-year process of waiting for God's timing. He knows who he is. He knows that he is the anointed one, but the timing for the fulfillment has not come. So keep that in mind as we look um, into the details of this passage. For today, it's a pretty long um, section of scripture, but there's a lot in here. So I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you read 25 verses. You're welcome. Um, But what I am going to do is I'm going to break it into sections, and we're going to just talk. I'm going to read each section. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the crazy stuff. And then after that, we're going to go through um, what I pulled out of three things that jumped out to me about this passage. Um, There's so much more. Guys, read these passages. Dig into scripture for yourself. You'll probably get 10 more things out of this one passage, but we're going to focus on these three. Does that sound good? All right, strap on your sandals. We're heading in. Um, so verses 1 to 4 say this. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, and saying, Is David not hiding in the hills opposite of Jeshimom? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having... 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hills of Hegeliah, which is opposite of Jasmon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness. He saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul indeed had come. So keep this in mind. Two chapters ago... David knew that Saul said he was done. He was not coming after him. This was not going to happen. But now we have these Ziphites, who is another one of these nations that's surrounding. And the Ziphites, they come to Saul, and they say, hey, guess what? David's over here. So somehow, like we said, you know, I think different people have mentioned, how David always knows where Saul is, but Saul never seems to be able to find David Um, And you see where God is protecting him. Um, But Saul had promised to leave him alone, but the temptation is too great. When the Ziphites come and they say, hey, guess where David is? Um, It sends Saul back into the place of pursuing David. Again, keep this in mind. Saul has, we know in this passage, he has 3,000 men that are part of his army that are coming after David. David. Now, we don't know it in this passage, but if we looked previously, David has about 600 men. So the numbers are a little skewed here. And remember that David's guys are kind of like a ragtag group of guys that are together. Saul's are the fighting men of Israel. And so we have this, um, this is what this battle is looking like. Okay, so the next section is verses 5 through 8. And this is David's second opportunity to kill Saul. So listen, remember... We had him in the cave, Saul's peeing, and he doesn't kill him. (laughs) So let's look at the second opportunity. So David arose and came to that place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and sent to Abimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab saying, who will go with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai says, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai come to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head and Abner and all the people laid all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day Therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. I will not have to strike him a second time. Do you hear that confidence? (laughs) So here, first of all, I want to point out, the beginning of this part says David arose. David could have sent any one of his 600 men, right? He has 600 men that are at his disposal. But instead, David's like, I'm going myself. I'm going into this camp, and I'm the one who's going to take the risk. And he asked for a volunteer. And I love this guy. Abishai is like, I'm going. He willingly puts his life at risk and says that he's going to go with David. So Abishai and David sneak into the camp at night. Saul is sleeping. So if you can picture the idea of this in the commentaries it's talking about, most likely, and this would make sense, Saul is like in the middle of the camp, right? And then all 3,000 people are around him. So imagine these two men sneaking into 3,000. Imagine what this would have been like for them. And so they go in there. Saul is completely vulnerable because he is sound asleep, and Abner. This is his chief guy. Abner, like if you've read, I mean, he is like, a, you know, wins all kinds of battles. He is his main go-to man. He's sleeping right next to him, right? Because this is like his like personal bodyguard and in charge. So they're sleeping with 3,000 people around him. And somehow, Abishai and David make it all the way to the middle of the camp. Guys, this is pretty amazing, Right? And then what do they find? They see that Saul's spear is in the ground right next to him, and there's a jug by his head. And Abishai says, hey, listen, last time you didn't want to kill him, I'll take care of it. I'm just going to grab the spear, and I'm going to—it's so easy. He's sleeping. You know, I'm going to stick it right through, and it's going to be done. And um, and he says, I'm not even going to have to do it twice. Like, you know, I mean, I have a bunch of, you know, a bunch of you are hunters. My husband's a hunter. There are times you need that second shot, you know? Like, you just don't quite get it in that right spot. But, I mean, Abishai is, like, convinced, like, I've got this one. This is pretty easy. Um, The one thing that's interesting, too, the spear that Abishai wants to use is the same spear that Saul tried to kill David with multiple times. If we look back in Samuel 18 and chapter 18 and chapter 19, he had tried before to throw spear at David and kill him. This is the exact same spear. Imagine the revenge. Like if David was in a place, it'd be like, heck yeah. Take that spear that he tried to kill me with, and you kill him right on the spot. And I am going to be done with this. I no longer have to flee. This whole thing is done. I am the anointed one. Anyway, I know this. So let's get on with this plan, right? This makes sense that this could be his thought process. But let's see how David handles this. In verses 9 through 12, we see David's response to Abishai and what he's going to say. But it says, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. No man saw it or knew it, or awoke. They were all sleeping because the Lord put them into a deep sleep. So listen here. God, guys, this is crazy stuff here. David is not going to, tr- going to kill Saul because he instead, he trusts God's timing. And they were all sleeping. Why? Because they were just really tired? They all took uh, sleeping pills? No. God put them into a deep sleep. And so... Here we have, instead of killing him, David instead grabs the jug and he grabs the spear and they take that with them. Imagine this scene. You're in the middle of 3,000 men. If one of these soldiers wakes up, you could be killed, right? But not one of them wakes up. Um, Let's look at um, verses 13 through 16. It says, David um, chides Abner and Saul's bodyguard. Now David went over to the other side to picture this. David sneaks back out. Nobody has a clue this happened. And he stood on top of the hill afar of off, a great distance being between them. He does not want to be close to them when they wake up, right? And David calls out to the people and Abner the son of Ner, and he says, "Do you not answer, Abner?" And Abner answers, "Said, who is calling out to the king?" Remember, this is his chief commander, bodyguard. So David said to Abner, "Are you not a man And who is like you in Israel? Why have you then not guarded the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and where the jug of water is that was by his head. Can you imagine David's satisfaction Can you hear this, like, calling out in this place where David is saying out to this commander-in-chief, hey, you didn't protect him well. Look what we got. You know, he's saying to him, this is a vivid scene. And David is implying to Abner that David cared more for Saul's life than Abner did. And then he holds up that spear, and he holds out that jug, and he—it's undeniable evidence that David had the opportunity to kill Saul— but did not. Just like two chapters ago, the undeniable evidence of the robe being cut and David showing that to Saul. And so in verses 17 through 20, David now speaks to Saul. And we see here, then Saul knew David's voice and he said, is that your voice, my son, David? David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, why does the Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out from this day from sharing in the inheritance of the lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall on the earth before the face of the lord, For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Listen to the beginning of this. When Saul cries out to David, listen to what he's saying. Is that your voice, my son, David? Isn't it ironic that Saul says, my son? He's coming after him to kill him. They did have a tight relationship at one point, remember? David was his main man. David fought against all his enemies, for Saul the king. And yet Saul has become jealous and twisted in his mind and he has come after David. And yet here, in the midst of trying to come after David and kill him, he says, my son. Is this a way to treat somebody that you're calling my son? But listen to what David says. Listen to his words. He says, my Lord. He says, oh king. He says, my Lord again. Please let my Lord. Then he says, his servant, listen to the humility that David is speaking with as opposed to what Saul is saying here. And so in verse 21, we see that Saul apologizes to David. It says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Saul here is admitting his wrong. And because David spared his life once again, Saul is saying, I'm done trying to harm you. This may be hard for David to believe because of his track record. And finally, we're gonna look at verses 22 to 25. David explains to Saul why he didn't kill him. And it said, David answers Saul and he says, here is the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointing. Indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. He's prophesying he's telling him you're going to do great things and prevail. And prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. David refused to take the throne through murder or rebellion. He would wait for God's timing. In this, David trusted that God would put him on the throne in the right time. And so it says that David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Listen to this. David and Saul would part ways on this day, and they would never see each other again. After this, Saul ends up being killed in battle. He actually kills himself, falls on his own sword, and that's going to happen. They will never once see each other again. And so the Lord is going to take care of all of these details. So what can we learn from this passage today? It's a pretty crazy passage, right guys? Like there's a lot in here. And so, three things that I'm just going to point out that stood out to me today are the idea of watch, walk, and wait. So what does this mean? Number one, we're going to watch for miracles from God. In 1 Samuel 26, 12, it says this, they were all sleeping because the Lord put them into a deep sleep. I said this before, but listen, there is a deep sleep that the Lord put on these men This is miraculous, and this is a miracle that happened. But listen, David had to step out in faith to see the miracle, right? If David did not go into the enemy's camp at night in faith that God was leading him to do this, he would not have seen a miracle. We see a pattern in David's life of faith and obedience. David was willing to go into the camp, and it's not passive. He needed to step in to see the miracle. David had faith that God was with him. He obeyed and a miracle happened. Without believing that God would show up, no person in their right mind is walking into the middle of a 3,000 member army to go to the leader in the middle of the camp. David believed that God was with him, right? He believed that if he walked in, God would show up. This ends for all time, Saul coming after him. But David had to take a step of faith. There was an old song that you may have heard if you grew up in the church, and it said, Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Trusting is half a step. David did his thing, and God did his. There's this idea that God partners with us and with humans, and it's a beautiful dance to be able to watch. We said this line before, past victories bring present confidence. I have this on your handout. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you see God working in your life? Jesus performed miracles. So we saw David who believed. Now let's look at Jesus. In each of these um, points that I have, we're going to look at David, we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to look at us, okay? What can we learn from it? Jesus performed miracles. It was a regular part of his ministry. Jesus can do anything. He is still a God of miracles today, right? We can see them all the time, but we have to train our eyes. We have to open our eyes. We have to take steps of faith and obedience at times to be positioned to see the miracles. I was thinking about some of Jesus' miracles, and there's times Jesus does different things in the Bible, right? Like there's times where he says like, Lazarus, come forth, and just comes forth, and it just happens. But I think there's some other ones that I've been reading through the New Testament and looking at some of the miracles that are a little different. And there was one point in time where Jesus was healing a blind man. He had lots of blind people, and he kind of did it different every time, which is interesting, but there was one time where he put mud on the guy's eyes, and the person had to go wash. And it wasn't until that blind man went and washed that the miracle happened. Right, there's a step of faith, and then the miracle took place. What about the situation with the ten lepers? How many of you know the ten leper story in the Bible? So there were ten lepers, and they are all they're outcasts. And Jesus is walking by, and they all yelled, "On, please heal us! Their lives, unless Jesus shows up, they are gonna die. Outcasts. Their family has been taken from them. They are all alone." And listen to this part of the miracle that you may miss. Jesus says that their faith is what healed them. They had to go show themselves to the priest. When were they healed? On the way. So they had to start walking where they weren't even allowed. They weren't allowed out of the leper camp, but they start walking. And as they're walking, that's when the miracle happens. What about in the Old Testament? I was thinking about this crazy story in the Old Testament of Naaman. And Naaman was this, this commander and chief right? And he ends up with leprosy. And um, so people tell him, actually, a servant girl of his enemies that they captured. It's so interesting to me. She's the one that ends up telling him, you should go see this prophet. And so he's desperate. His people are desperate for him. And so he makes this journey to go see the prophet. And the prophet says to Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And listen to this. In 2 Kings 5.11, listen to Naaman's response. Guys, this is key. Listen. But Naaman went away angry. I thought that he would surely come out to see me. He doesn't even come out. He just sends the people to say, Tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. He says, he would surely come out to see me and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of of my leprosy. He has this prescription of what a miracle is going to look like, right? And so he's just going away angry. And again, his servants say to him, wait a minute. If Listen to this. It says in verse 13, Naaman's servant said, my father, if the prophet told you some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and his, and his flesh became, became clean, like that of a young boy. Listen, he had to go do something, right? He couldn't just step back, and actually, he couldn't even trust how he thought the miracle would look. And if he hadn't believed what his servants were saying, he would have gone away and died of leprosy. But yet his servants actually were the ones who trusted, they were the ones who said to him, go do this. How many times is God calling us to play that role in other people's lives? How many times is he calling us to be like those servants and say, hey, God can do this, why are you not listening? Listen, here's what he can do for you. How many of us, like Naaman, would miss the miracle? because we would say, "No, that's now, not how this should look. This isn't what my healing's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like this. And so we're just missing the miracle that he's going to do. In Revelation 12:11, it says this: "They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Guys, I want to fill this room with some faith this morning because I believe that our God is a God of miracles. And I am telling you, I see miracles all around me in my life and the lives of those around me that God is still a miracle worker. It may sometimes look different, but he is still moving and he's still working. One of the examples, all these examples are like in the last like three weeks, guys. Um, Where do you need to open up your eyes to see these miracles? Um, And I am telling you, in this room, guys, I know so many of you have had miracle after miracle that have happened. And when I look around this room, I see that God is moving and working, and I love what he is doing. So we bless that, and we call it good, and I just want to share some testimonies. And sometimes we say, you know, we share testimonies, our own stories, and we also can share testimonies of other people. And so one, just this um, two weeks ago, one of my coworkers, um, her name's Corinne, she was diagnosed With an aggressive cancer in the spring and she's my age and she was given six to nine months to live and so we as a company we raised money um to be able to give funds to her we had this big company event i i sell real estate is my main hustle and um i work for remax and so we had this big remax gathering there's like 350 of us at the hyatt at the airport and um so we go to give this money to corinne corinne starts talking And all she's supposed to do is share, you know, say, thank you. Thank you for this night. Well, all of a sudden, Corinne puts down her papers, and she's like, I got the stage, and I'm going to start, you know, sharing. So she starts sharing, and as soon as she starts talking, I got my phone out, and I started recording, because I'm like, something happened to Corinne. Corinne gave her life to Jesus over this six months' time, and she starts testifying to the love of the Father, who has come and he's met her and he's done the miraculous in her life. She testified and she said it like this. She said, "My father showed up." And she said, "I had nine spots on my liver." And she said the doctor said, you know, gave her this, you know, this death sentence. And she said every spot except for one is gone. Amen. The one that's left, she said it's wrapped around. She said, I can't do anything easy. It's wrapped around an artery. But she said, I said, you know, that doctor said to me, Corinne, if you can keep fighting, we can get that a little bit smaller. I can go in there and get that. And this was the same doctor that told her there was no hope. And she said to this doctor, my God showed up. And he said, I have not seen the miraculous. The doctor said this line, listen to this. We are watching a miracle and this does not happen. That's the doctor's line. And God is showing up in that circumstance. Carol um, is here today, our good friend, um, Carol Stewart. And I was thinking of Carol. And I got a chance to pray for Carol last week. And last year, at this time, Carol was diagnosed with cancer. And she was not doing good. Like, she was exhausted, and it was not a good circumstance. And we went into the holiday season. And Carol had these really specific wishes for this last year. I asked her permission. I didn't just put her on the spot. So I don't do that, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) You may be worried that I'm going to talk about you. Um, But Carol had these very specific things because this was a big year for her. She was turning 80. It was her 50th wedding anniversary. Her one granddaughter was turning 30. And her other granddaughter was having a wedding. And guys, do you know that our God showed up? And she made every one of those events and even more. And she is here today when the doctor said it wouldn't happen. Our God is a God of miracles, right? I shared part of the story real quick when I was up here, and Michael shared a little bit two weeks ago. Um, but we have our friend Ronnie, who works with Michael. And some of you may not have been here, she's 23 years old. And all of a sudden, on a Thursday morning, Michael got a text from her husband that she had gotten a brain clot. And, um, and so we prayed, and thousands of people prayed um, that she would be healed. And on Saturday, we got the news that there was no brain activity going on. Michael and I both felt called separately to go to the hospital and to pray resurrection of brain function. I'm telling you, first of all, I know hospitals aren't, like, Places people love, especially for Michael and I. Like, this is not our jam. And I always say that, like, God is like giving us more compassion, like, and we're praying for more and more. But that's also like, this is not like our primary. Like, we do not have like these gifts of mercy and like all of these things. And so, by God's grace, He gives us some of those and we're growing in that. Thank goodness. But listen, guys, there was a step of faith that we had to take and there was a step of obedience. To just doing what God called us to. We were full of faith, and we obeyed. We went in faith, but guys, we had a lot of fear going into that place. What would the family think? How are we even going to get into this room? Like, we didn't even know if we were going to be allowed in, um, but we knew we were called. So while we went down to the hospital, we took every resurrection story in the Bible, and we cut and paste it into a document, and... Um, when we got to the hospital, we went up to the floor of the ICU, and we called the nurse, and we got beeped in. And guess what? They took us straight to her room. Not one person asked us who we were, what we were doing there. <laughs> like, they just ushered her right into this room. And guess what? It was just us. There was no one else that was there in that place. And so we went in, and we had the room to ourselves for over an hour. We read every resurrection scripture. We prayed, we worshiped, we cried with her, and we laughed, and we believed, and we obeyed. And in the end, I looked up at the board in the room, and this was the picture that I saw. Her nurse was Brooke, and her caregiver was Hope. Guys, do you think we were supposed to be there? And to usher hope into a space where everyone else said there was no hope left. And there's a mystery in all of it, but this sign was like a hug from Jesus. And we filled the room with hope, and we left, and we waited. We prayed in faith that God would heal her here and bring her back to life, but he chose to take her home to be with him. God did a miracle, but it was different than what we wanted. But guys, Ronnie is whole and healed we are left here grieving and sad, but she's dancing with Jesus. These are places where God is showing up. Two weeks ago, we have a situation. We've had all of these um, medical issues. Actually, I didn't ask you, Michael, but I just used you as examples, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's just my other half, so you get to be a part of these stories. Um, Michael, for some of you that don't know, Michael has long covid Honestly, it's a miracle that he's here with us today. Um, but There's just been complications, and it's so annoying as we, like, step in this um, journey. And um, he had these issues going on with swallowing, and it was getting worse. And so finally, one Monday morning, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was like, that's it. I'm like, we're going to figure this out. <laughs> and so I put an email in to his pulmonary embolism specialist who, um, honestly, there was a miracle last January. Michael had all blood clots left in his lungs, like all in the lining of his lungs, and they miraculously all went away. So <laughs> Dr. Rizbiano knows this, and, um, and he's just an amazing guy. So I sent him an email, and I just said, hey, here's what's going on with Michael. What do I do? He told me, call the GI specialist at um, Presby, and um, and that they could do an EGD procedure of the lower esophagus. This is pulmonary. So if you guys know any medical, it's like, you know, normally they don't cross you know fields. So He's just telling me who to call. So I call, I get this guy, Daniel, and Daniel is the scheduler, and he says to me, he's like, listen, if you can get him, because I explained about this test and meeting with a doctor. He said, if you can get um, the test ordered, I can just schedule that. You guys know how complicated medical things are, right? And I'm like, hey, why not try it? So I emailed Dr. Risbano back. I'm like, hey, if you can put the order in, we can just get this test, you know, done. He emails me back five minutes later. He says, ordered. I was like, wow, that's awesome. So I call my friend Daniel, Daniel's now my friend, right? So I call Daniel back. I'm like, hey, Daniel. I'm like, I'm like you know, he said he ordered it. He's like, it's in there. Within two days, Michael is in the, oh, the, you know, operating, getting the, um, the procedure done. And as soon as he comes out of the operation, the doctor, who we'd never met with a doctor about this issue, <laughs> the doctor says to him, hey, he's like, I figured out, you know, he's like, we went down. He's like, there was a swelling. He's like, I'm going to give you this medicine. He's like, you should feel better almost instantly and then be on this medicine for six to eight weeks. And, um, and so talk about, like what we say, you can't make this stuff up. Michael getting a scope in two days and an answer in medicine is a miracle, right? God could have showed up miraculously. We prayed for that. He could have showed up miraculously, but he chose to answer with a scope and in 48 hours and give us medication. Today, we saw this miracle up here, right? Do you hear this? Like you have to take a step of faith. Like those kids going out, They believed the week before in what the testimony was and they wrote down those verses and they trusted that God was going to give it where it needed to go. Listen, if they don't take a step of faith, if they don't go to Lowe's, they're not seeing a miracle. How many miracles are we missing because we're not going to Lowe's? How many miracles are we missing because we're not taking these steps of faith? How many miracles? You know, we wanted Ronnie to be a resurrection miracle story. God didn't choose the answer in that same way, but we took a step of faith and we went trusting. Can you see God working? Do you believe that God can still do the impossible? Like we said, we say you can't make this stuff up. Corinne, spots disappearing. Michael getting miraculous medical um, answers in 48 hours. Carol, living to see dreams fulfilled. Forgiveness, confession, freedom. Our kids' testimonies today. There are miracles all around us. So questions we can ask God, will you show me the miracles, both large and small, around me? And then listen, guys, where do I need to take a step of faith and obey and obey to see the miracles that God wants to show me? Second, we walk in humility with Him. In 1 Samuel 26, 17, it says this: David said, It is my voice, my Lord, my king. Why does my Lord pursue his servant? David is acting in humility. He demonstrates humility in how he interacts with Saul. Think of Jesus. Jesus is the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth. In Philippians 2, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Where are we to be like Jesus? Where can we choose Humility instead of pride. Humility is a choice. Like Jesus, where can we think of others more highly than, him or than ourselves? It says in First Peter, it says, Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So some questions to ask yourself, how can I choose to be humble and renounce pride? How can I put others' needs and desires before my own? I can ask God to show us what this looks like in our lives this week as we walk in humility. And finally, wait as God defends and avenges you. In 1 Samuel 26, we saw that David said that the Lord would strike him down, or his day would come to die, or Saul would go into battle and perish. David is trusting, he does not have to get revenge on Saul. He's trusting God with the outcome. The Lord was more than able to kill Saul at any time. David has no idea that he's never going to see Saul alive again at this point. But he trusts that God is going to take care of Saul. David does not have to control or manipulate, but he can trust God for the outcome. Romans twelve nineteen says it like this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This verse frees us from having to take justice into our own hand. Listen, guys, God is going to take up our cause and see to it that justice will be done. We can lay it down. We do not have to carry bitterness or anger or resentment or revenge. Guys, an unforgiving heart, will destroy you in the end. Listen to this. God will settle our accounts and he will do it more justly, more mercifully, and more thoroughly than we could ever imagine. He punishes all sin. Guys, nobody gets away with anything. We can relinquish our control of the things that have been done to us and see what God can do. We're to forgive, and we're to bless. And David showed us how to do this. Jesus shows us this. Jesus was wrongly accused. He was hated by so many people, especially the religious leaders. Jesus does not try to get revenge or control the situation or make his own plans. He follows what the Father is doing. Years ago, I heard it said like this, called the prayer of relinquishment. And when Jesus was in the garden, he says this, and it's on your handout, Luke twenty-two, forty-two. 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Listen, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what the cross would be. He knew the pain and suffering that he was going to face. This does take him to the cross. But in the end, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus leaves all vengeance to God. Instead of revenge, he trusts that God has a plan. And that plan led to our opportunity for salvation. That plan led to the cross, but then it led to the resurrection. And we are able to bear the fruit of what Jesus did as he relinquished the control and accepted the path of walking where God was taking him. Guys, real wrongs have been done to each of us. Real wrongs were done to David, right? Saul coming after him. Um, Real wrongs were done to Jesus more than any of us can imagine. And real wrongs have been done to each of us. We don't minimize the wrongs, but we also don't have to control the outcome. We can release it to him. And so the reflection questions that I have here, who or what situations do I need to give God and trust his plan. Who do I need to forgive to release bitterness and anger from my life? If David was filled with resentment and bitterness and anger toward Saul, he would not have been ready to be the king that God desired him to be. In this training ground, he learned that God has a better plan and he could rest in that.